Journeying on this dirt path called life can leave you beaten, bruised, and defeated. Our hearts crave a reason to keep going, and our minds seek something to make sense of it all. This is why I explore the depths of the Bible with real Jesus as that hope and the one who holds our answers. This is a sermon podcast of my weekly sermon at the Ravenna Church in Nazarene, located in Ravenna, Kentucky. In November 1950, during the Korean War, uh, U.S. forces found themselves encircled by the enemy. They had been surprised by 120,000 Chinese troops, and over a 17-day stretch, 30,000 U.S. and U.N. troops engaged them in the brutal cold. Despite the elements and being outnumbered, the U.N. troops were able to break free and retreat from North Korea before being destroyed. This battle is known as the battle is known as the Battle of the Chosen Reservoir. A general in that battle was Oliver Prince Smith, and he was with the 1st Marine Division. And he had a humorous and profound quote as his troops were on the move. General Smith said, we're not retreating, we're just advancing in a different direction. And while it's somewhat funny, it's true. Had they not retreated, the forces would have been, the forces would have been annihilated. But withdrawing enabled them to live and fight another day. You and I, we face similar struggles, situations, and, and sins on a regular basis. Sometimes we're taken by surprise, but most of our battles are the same ones. However, we know that we are supposed to live a certain way, that we are called into holiness by God. And so no matter how hard we try to overcome these things, it, it seems we always find a way to fail. Well, perhaps it's because we keep trying to find victory by going in the same direction. Perhaps the way to find victory is to advance in a different direction. And Isaiah 49 shows us the way. Our text for today is Isaiah chapter 49, verses 24 through 26. And it reads, Can the prey be taken from a mighty man, or the captives of a tyrant be delivered? For this is what the Lord says, Even the captives of a mighty man will be taken, and the prey of a tyrant will be delivered. I will contend with the one who contends with you, and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they will drink, or, and they will be drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. Then all people will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So this prophecy is recorded by Isaiah, and it's one sent to be given to exiles. God's people had been disobedient. They had ignored God's law. And even worse, they had flaunted God's promise as a protection for doing so. Meaning they believed because God had promised them all these things that it meant they could behave and live however they wanted. And they found out that's not the case. While God offers us grace and while God offers us his gifts freely, you and I, once we accept those gifts, are to live a life of faith. And God's people weren't doing that. They weren't living up to his standard of holiness. They weren't living by his law. And thus the nation was conquered by Babylon and the survivors were led off into captivity. So verse 24 is a question. 
Now, this question needs to be read from a mind filled with despair. That's where these exiles were. Imagine you were them and your nation is prisoner in another nation. You have no army because how, of how powerful the enemy was that defeated you. Yet these exiles are being told that they will one day be set free. A desperate and defeated heart examines that, those words. And they ask, can the prey be taken from a mighty man or the captives of a tyrant be delivered? Essentially, what they are asking is, how can this be? How can this happen? We have no army left. We have no strength left. We, don't, we, are, we are captives in a foreign land. How are we going to get the weapons? How is this going to come about? It's the way seemed impossible to them. So since verse 24 is a question offered by these conquered hearts, God is responding to them in verses 25 and 26. God is giving them the answer to their question. So in verse 25, God says, Even the captives of a mighty man will be taken, and the prey of a tyrant will be delivered. I will contend with the one who contends with you. God tells them that the strength of the warriors who are against them does not matter. Think about it. They just experienced being defeated by the Babylonians. Their warriors were mighty. They were powerful. They plundered them. They, they overcame their soldiers. The king, the tyrant that was oppressing them, he had the power and the wealth. But God was telling these exiles, it doesn't matter how strong those warriors are. It doesn't matter the power and the wealth wielded by this tyrant because their power and wealth will not be enough because they are going up against God. No one who conquers God's people will be strong enough to defeat God. To defeat God. God is stronger. Now, verse 26 is a continuation of God's answer to the question asked by the exiles in verse 24. This verse is an explanation of how God was going to free them, which is unusual. Usually when, when God calls us to live by faith and God offers us something, he doesn't always give us an itinerary. But there are some cases where he does, and that's exactly what happens here. God is going to tell his people exactly how he is going to set them free. And the words are, are, the description is very graphic. I don't remember ever being taught this verse in Sunday school class. I don't ever remember singing any of the kid the songs about the, you know, using this verse in children's church uh, or vacation Bible school. But these are the words of God to these exiles after telling them, no, no, it doesn't matter how strong the warriors and the conquerors of you are. They're not strong enough to beat me. This is what God tells, says. This is how God says he's going to beat them. He says, I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they will be drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. Oh, this language is intense. But this language indicates to us the divine strategy. You see, a nation, a group, a team is strong when it's united and then they're working together for a single purpose. It's hard to beat a nation that's working together like that. It's hard to beat a team that where everyone is doing their job and fulfilling their roles for the betterment of the team. And that's how the Babylonians were able, over, able to overcome God's people. Yes, they had, they had God's help to be used as God's instrument. And perhaps God's grace was there enabled, enabling them to, to look past one another's faults, to look past one another's deficiencies and work together 
for the common for their common purpose. But what happens when that grace is removed? Or what happens when that grace is rejected? A team or a nation or a group that's working well together can very easily turn on themselves. We've seen it happen time and time again, even in the church, right? We've seen churches that were strong and thriving, and then they begin to fight with one another and become fragmented and end up even closing eventually. And so many times those church fights that occur, they're not because of doctrinal issues, not because of of super important things. A lot of the times the fights that break out are over carpet color and what color they're going to paint the walls. A nation that's divided against itself cannot stand it. A nation is strong when it's united, but if the people in that nation turn on each other, then things get ugly quick. You know, our, our the United States, our country, knows this better than just about anywhere. 620,000 soldiers died in the American Civil War, plus another 50,000 civilians. That's how bloody things can get when a group that's once united turns on each other. And so in, these, in this verse, in verse 26, God is telling the Israelites, God is telling his people that he's going to free them because Babylon was going to turn on itself. And all of the might that was united in conquest would turn inward. Instead of fighting together to defeat a common enemy and conquer a common land that they were after, now they will be fighting against each other for the same turf and for power over the same turf. That fight would get bloody real quick. You know, Babylon is not the only nation that would fall this way. If you go back and you look later in history, this is what would really cause the Roman Empire to fall. They, they, become, they became divided. They weren't united as they once were. Strong nations tend to not be conquered by outsiders first. What conquers them and makes them vulnerable to the outsiders is when they stop getting along and working together for the single purpose and single good of the society. But anyway, that's what God tells, tells them is going to happen to Babylon. And some historians will point this out as truth. Uh, we actually read about this in the book of Daniel, how the Persians are going to conquer and seriously end up ruling the Babylonian Empire. But some historians will point out that dissatisfaction within the Babylonian Empire itself is what leads to this defeat by the Persians. Now, verse 26 continues. God continues his explanation of how it's going to happen. And he's going to say the reason why, he says, and all the people will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. So the way God's people would gain their freedom would come about in a way where the people couldn't look in the mirror and say, I did this myself. They can't say, we achieved this by our own strength and my, our own might. They, these exiles recognize how vulnerable, weak, and defenseless they really are. But they would find freedom. They would be, they would be led out of captivity by God. It would be God's strength that would lead them. The way that God's people would gain freedom 
would leave no doubt as to the one who was responsible. And that is the point. And not only would it remind God's people of this point, but it will also tell the whole world that God is real. Now, how does this apply to me? Without a doubt, there is a physical reality to the application of these verses. You and I, we can find that practical application in this verse is the physical application by if we turn to the back of the book. One of the things I loved in school was when I had a textbook that had the answers in the back of the book. And you and I as Christians, we have the answer in the back of our Bibles. And that book is the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation exists to tell us about the physical reality that we can apply from here in Isaiah. Now, there are a lot of different ways that we can interpret the book of Revelation. Matter of fact, when I, when I did a, a study recently through the book of Revelation, one of my favorite commentators on it was Adam Clark. And Adam Clark, in his, as he was beginning to open his discussion on, on it in his commentary, he states, there's a lot of piffle out there on the book of Revelation, and now I'm going to add to it. Right, because there's just so much out there. There's so much people who have read it and tried to wrestle with it. And part of the reason why it's so difficult to understand the book of Revelation is, is it's not a book that you and I can read and logically piece together. Matter of fact, another commentator put it this way. He pointed out that the book of Revelation is a book of the imagination. And he's not saying that because the book of Revelation is imaginary or made up stuff. What he is implying is what we have in Revelation is one man's dream that he did the best to describe using the, the, the human language that was available to him, which was Greek. He barely understood what he saw as he was describing it. And then you and I have the added difficulty of that being translated from Greek into English or whatever language you're reading it in, where not, the words don't always 100% accurately just translate from one language to the next. And that doesn't even take into the consideration or the account all the cultural differences and, and, and understandings that would be in the original writing that you and I have lost because we aren't in that culture. We aren't in that time period. But here's the thing. No matter how you interpret the book of Revelation, the whole apocalyptic episode exists for one point. Now, that point is not to scare people straight. If you're reading the book of Revelation and you're trying to use it to scare people to Jesus, then you're reading it the wrong way. Think about who wrote it. It was a pastor who had been left and stranded on an island called Patmos. He had been arrested for teaching Jesus. It was a time of intense persecution in the church. And here this pastor is on a, on a Sunday morning or whatever day it was, left alone to die on this island. And this wasn't just any pastor. This was a good pastor, one who cared and loved his people. He wanted to see them grow closer to Jesus, to walk with Jesus and experience all the blessings of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. But he knows, one, that they're facing the same persecution that just landed him on the island. And he also knows he can't be there to comfort them or worship alongside them, that they were going through this without him. So you can imagine the gnawing agony. And we, we read this in so that brings into Revelation 1, which Revelation 1 is where we see the point. This pastor is alone on the island. You can imagine the dark place that he's in. And Jesus does the most Jesus-like thing that Jesus does. 
when it seemed dark, lost, and hopeless, Jesus went to this servant on the island. And he essentially tells him in Revelation 1, Look, John, I have you in my hand, and I have, my, and I have the churches too. And then he gives him this beautiful revelation. And the, and the point of this entire revelation that was given to John, that was given to the church in this time of intense persecution was that this, this is the point of it. This is a simple message of revelation, no matter how you interpret it. That no matter how bad it gets or dark the world becomes, Jesus wins. And that's the application that's available to you and I. No matter how dark the world gets or, or, or how strong evil seems to become, we have the assurance of knowing that Jesus wins in the end. He, one day he's going to come back and death, evil, Satan and, all, and the, de- the demons, and all those who practice evil will one day face the judgment of God. And evil will be destroyed once and for all. Evil has an expiration date. Now, with Revelation, as well as all the other all the other New Testament writers, and some fact, some even in the Old Testament, the fact is shared that followers of Jesus must endure to the end. Paul tells us to put on the armor of God. Jesus shares that we must persevere. Why are they telling us this? They're telling us this because they're letting us know that faith can be surrendered and abandoned. If that were not so, if we couldn't choose to walk away from the faith, if we couldn't reject the grace of God once we've experienced it, if we couldn't, if, then they wouldn't implore us to endure till the end. They wouldn't implore, implore us to hang on like a hair in a biscuit. There's no need for these reminders if that weren't true. But that's not what the writers in the New Testament say. That's not what Jesus is. They say, persevere till the end. Hold on to the end. And if you can hold on to the end through faith in Jesus Christ, then you can be assured that in the end, Jesus wins and you win alongside him. Now, for folks like us struggling with temptations, sin, and sinful habits, this physical reality gives us assurance of victory in Jesus. But the question that nags us is in the face of all these things, can we hang on till the end? I mean, we're only human, and we're humans living in a, a, a you know, we are only human, we're broken, we're living in a broken world with broken rules. We live in a world where it seems that the evil is awful strong. The ways and practices of evil are awful strong. And the way they're, they're, they've, they've impacted our mind and our heart, they seem too strong for us to overcome and, and defeat. Yet we know living according to those and stuck to those patterns go against God's call for us to be holy and live a holy life. So how can we hope to endure till the end in the face of such evil and corruption? Both in the world and within ourselves. That's where this passage comes in. And without a doubt, this passage in Isaiah, just as it has a physical reality, has a spiritual reality that's just as true. And we can uncover and recognize this reality by connecting Isaiah's words with the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 3. 
Jesus had been casting out demons all over, all over the earth, all over the place. And when the Jewish scribes catch word of, of what Jesus was doing, they come to him and they, 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 they accuse Jesus. They, they, they tell him that the only reason he's able to cast out demons is because Jesus himself is possessed by Satan. And so Jesus responds to them with this parable. He says, how can Satan throw, out, throw Satan out? A kingdom involved in civil war will collapse, and a house torn apart by divisions will collapse. If Satan rebels against himself and is divided, then he can't endure. He's done for. No one gets into the house of a strong person and steals anything without tying up the strong person. Only then can the house be burglarized. Throughout the Gospels, there's many stories of Jesus casting out demons from many different people. And by telling this parable, Jesus is telling the scribes that it's not the power of Satan at work releasing those held captive. That's what he means when he says, only, the, only uh, no one can go in the house of a strong person and steal anything without tying up the person first. Essentially, what Jesus is telling these scribes is that I am God. It was the power of God at work in Jesus. Because only God was strong enough to go in the strong man's house, the strong man being Satan and the works of evil. Only the strong man could go in there, tie him up, and lead out the hostages that he was holding. Those who were possessed by demons were those held hostage by the strong man. Yet Jesus went in there, tied him up, took a hold of those captives, and led them to freedom. This was the power of God at work in Jesus because Jesus is God. And that's the good news for you and I. That's the spiritual reality that we live in. This, because this Jesus is alive. And through the Holy Spirit, Jesus can bind the strong man that holds us captive. So that neither Satan or sin or death has any claim on us. That is the full extent of the grace of God that is available to us through Jesus. Jesus didn't just die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. That was a big part of it. Sin had to be dealt with because God is holy. And the punishment for sin is death. So someone had to die for it. But Jesus took that punishment for himself and died as the atonement once and for all for sin for all time. But he didn't stay that he rose again to new life to, to break a way for us to be free from sin, to be free from the patterns of this world. See, the temptations that strike at us strategically, those fiery darts of the evil one that exploit our weak points, they cannot hold us if we trust in the king of our heart, if we place faith in Jesus. Sins that have conquered the strength of our heart, they cannot hold us if we trust in the king of our heart by having faith, that, that's having faith in Jesus. Habits and dark thoughts that may control our mind like a tyrant, they cannot hold us if we trust in the king of our heart, if we have faith in Jesus. Now understand the freedom I'm mentioning here. Yes, it can happen with a snap of a finger. It can happen in an instant. Because Jesus has that power, because God has that power. God is almighty. There's nothing that he cannot do. However, however, sometimes we have to recognize 
why we're making those sinful choices, why that patterns become a reality. Because so much of sin, it, what sin really boils down to is it's a perversion of, of, of trying to obtain the things that our body needs. Our human condition, our human bodies, our human spirits, physically, emotionally, spiritually, we were designed with needs. And so much of sin happens and so many of our simple habits begin because we are trying to fulfill those needs that were given to us by God, by, by, by unprescribed means that, that God does not ordain. We try and obtain those things through disobedience. So sometimes Jesus comes in and he helps us declutter our mind. He helps us declutter our hearts so we can see what the need is in our lives that's going unfulfilled or getting filled by the sin that we're committing in our lives. And Jesus reveals that to us, either on our own or through the help of someone else. Jesus reveals that to us. So that way he, is, he reveals that need to us so we can realize that that is the need in our lives. And then also understand that God is the one who can supply that need for us. See, so we've been faithful and, you know, we've been trying. We've been trying to be faithful. We've been trying to live up to God's standard of holiness. But we keep running into this, this strong enemy that surrounds us, that's encircled us. We've been, despite us persevering in our own strength, we're recognizing that it's not enough. That we keep failing over and over again. We've tried reading our Bible. We've tried memorizing the scripture passages that will help us. We've tried praying. We've tried reading all the self-help books we can find. We've even watched Oprah. We have tried anything and everything in the direction of victory. But maybe the way we find victory is by advancing in a different direction. Instead of us charging headlong into the battle against these things, trying to do it in our own strength and might, perhaps what we need to do is retreat behind the cross. And stand in the shadow of, the, of the, our God who is stronger. Stand with our Jesus. Who has, will, and will overcome all things. And we'll let our faith in him be the one who dictates the outcome of our lives. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Dirt Passman Podcast. It is recorded live at the Ravenna Church of the Nazarene, located at 530 Main Street in Ravenna, Kentucky. Our theme song is The Dirt Path by Jeremy Edwards. Be sure to visit the thedirtpathswimmingpodcast.com where you can leave me a message, subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, and find daily devotional videos. <laughs>